Thank you. I actually feel I scored the jackpot because it's much easier to think about a sermon and be cogitating on that throughout the week than when one is actually at school and nods her head. May these words and our reflections bring glory to God and strengthen our bonds with Jesus Christ and one another as God's Holy Spirit moves within and amongst us. Amen. The life that really is life. I love that phrase. It's captivating. Who else would like to live this kind of life? It reminds me of what Jesus makes possible when in John's Gospel he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And again, Jesus, as Matthew puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and silverfish and mold and mildew will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. I don't think Jesus mentioned mold and mildew. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So perhaps the life that really is life, where what matters most takes priority over what matters least, is elusive because we become so preoccupied with things that distract us from what matters most. And the love of money is an obvious example. I saw some very clever advertising last week, and no doubt you did too, because it's absolutely everywhere, on screens, and billboards, in magazines. I was at the movies, and for 20 minutes before the film began, ad after ad promoting gambling, and insurance, and banking, and superannuation products, um, promoted their products as though they were the pathway to the life that really is life. Because inevitably, in each and every ad, what this product offered you was a better relationship with your family and friends. In the cinema zone of make-believe, it's easy for just a moment to get sucked in. In contrast, the focus of this last chapter in the first letter to Timothy is this. There is great gain, and perhaps the only gain, really, in godliness combined with contentment. Perhaps this is the life that really is life. We'll return to that in a moment. But imagine, if you will, if the Apostle Paul were to write a letter of encouragement to his loyal co-worker in the faith, Stuart, along with our ministry team offering guidance and encouragement for their ministry and for the strengthening of our worshipping community, what would Paul write, do you think? What are the challenges to peace and unity for the household of God at Anglican Church Robina? And highlighted for us two weeks ago, the challenges of division for any household, and especially the household of faith, the church. So while I'm not going to answer this directly, it may be a helpful question to ponder as we explore 1 Timothy 6. Using a device that you've seen before, it's commonly applied as we study biblical texts. 
In trying to understand the meaning of any text, there are three worlds at work that we might call sender, message, and receiver. And I think this approach is very relevant when we consider the letter to Timothy because it contains very diverse material. So the world behind the text is the world of the writer, who in this case is the Apostle Paul. Although it is entirely possible that someone is writing in the Pauline tradition after Paul's death in the late first or early second century, because the language of 1 Timothy and the structure of the church described within the letter make this a possibility. So the world behind the text prompts questions like, what is Paul's culture? What is Paul's worldview? What does Paul understand about himself? What does Paul understand about God? What does Paul understand about how we are called to live and to worship? And then there's the world of the text that explores the actual words and the language structure, the style, the grammar, all those kinds of things, and the way the text fits together. And then there's the world in front of the text. Well, that's us, the readers. 21st century people living on the Gold Coast or visiting the Gold Coast, searching for the good life, searching for the life that really is life. We'll move between these three worlds as we explore together whether buying a lottery ticket or an insurance policy or perhaps something else might provide the foundation from which we access the life that really is life. It's important to remember that the purpose of this letter um, is given to us in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. It was written with the instruction of love for both Timothy as the pastor and for the worshipping community at Ephesus. What kind of love? Love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. In chapter 6, the writer of the letter contrasts this kind of love with the love of money, calling the love of money a root of all kinds of evil and provides some guidance about how to foster the one kind of love and how to overcome the other. There are two key phrases that are distinctive within the pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, that are not used elsewhere in the New Testament. And I think these assist us a great deal in growing love that brings contentment. And these two phrases are the good fight, fight the good fight, and the word godliness. The word good is also used with unusual frequency in Timothy and especially in this chapter. As well as a good fight, Paul refer refers to a good confession, good works, and as we've already seen, a good foundation. The problem with the word good in English is that like love, good can mean pretty much whatever we want it to mean. For example, good job. That was really good ice cream. I looked after our grandchildren yesterday and they were so good. I'm feeling really good today. In this chapter, the Greek word translated as good has the sense of noble. So Paul instructs Timothy to shun the love of money and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. 
This could be a list of virtues from many cultures. This is not necessarily a Christian list of virtues except that word godliness that we find here in 1 Timothy. It's such a gem. It tells us so much about how we are to live out all those other virtues. What is to be our focus? And the pursuit of these things that includes godliness is the good fight, the noble fight of the faith. Now we all know that there have been some really bad fights of the faith over the centuries. So how to discern between the good fight and what might be a bad fight? And it's all very well for me to stand here on a peaceful, beautiful, sunny September morning in Rabina in 2019 and offer you my thoughts on that. I'm not sure how I would feel if we were in a time of dire crisis. I don't think it'd be quite as simple. But Paul gives us some clues though about how to fight this good fight as he considers Jesus' actions during his trial before Pontius Pilate. You see, this life that really is life is not just about here and now. And neither is it just about our life in eternity. It's about both. It's about here and now and our life in eternity. Here and now matters. That couldn't be clearer since Paul in verse 17 says that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In fact, Paul's theology throughout all his letters is very much that our life matters now. Our physical life, our spiritual life, our moral life, our emotional life. God has come to us in human form Yet the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is also King of kings and Lord of lords and has made the noble confession about his life of faith before Pontius Pilate, even though it sealed his death sentence. The cross is the central iconic image of fighting the good fight It's also the central iconic image of redemption where all of life is redeemed. The possibilities of redemption lie within the cross for now and for all of time. Our life is act one of the life that really is life. This is not a dress rehearsal for something that might come along in the future. The life that really is life, life in abundance, eternal life has begun because Jesus Christ has made it so. So what about godliness? It's kind of an awkward word, isn't it? I mean, I have to be really honest and say that I don't walk around at Coomera Anglican College and talk a lot about godliness. I'm not sure that that would get me very far with students. It's not a word that we use, really, even in church. So why would I use it with essentially secular students? and staff. And yet here it is, it is key, it's the secret ingredient in this chapter about how we can fight the good fight. The word is Eusebius in Greek and it means showing reverence and respect. And I think that we could do with a really good dose of reverence and respect in our dealings with one another, don't you? I think in our world we could do with really good dose of reverence and respect for ourselves, for one another, 
and for God. But another helpful way of understanding godliness is considering the whole of Christian life as a combination of our faith in God along with our good works that grow out of that faith lived in obedience to God. That is, godliness is living out Jesus' commandment to love God and to love our neighbour. So how might fighting the good fight and godliness assist us in resisting the temptation to love money, which is the root of all evil, to love God and the life that God offers us? Because the love of money clearly distracts us from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Some writers refer to this love of money as cravings. What cravings does a love of money insidiously create? Well, I think if we were to get together and talk about that, we'd probably end up with a really long list. But I've just come up with four that I think probably cover most possibilities. And we certainly don't have time to talk about each one at length, although we could. So I'm simply going to say about power. This chapter clearly demonstrates that the power of money, the power of the love of money, destroys us. The power of the cross is life-giving and liberates us. The power of the love of money confines us and constrains us to be servant to these cravings. A life lived in love towards God is a life of freedom. And Paul talks a lot about our freedom in Christ. The great um, 20th century uh, pastoral teacher, Henri Nguyen, says about Christian leaders that our biggest temptation perhaps is the temptation to power because that's much easier than doing the hard work of love. Entitlement and comparison. I think a love of money can give us a sense of entitlement and we can easily get into a mindset of comparing ourselves with others and having that kind of slightly, I am better than them because I have more than them. You get it, don't you, Bruno? Yep, I reckon we all do. Entitlement insidiously undermines love since it's self-centered, self-seeking, and self-focused. It's endemic in our societies, and yet gratitude can't really coexist alongside entitlement. We're either entitled or we're grateful. We can feel entitled because of our role, our position, our salary. We can feel entitled because of our family's past history, where we go on holidays, the car we drive, the boat we own. There are so many ways that we can feel entitled, especially in such an affluent place as the Gold Coast. And yet all of life is gift. All that we have is a good gift from God we're called to share it generously and to live our lives with gratitude. Self-indulgence. A love of money can provide us with a way where we can indulge our, our likes, the things that we crave. 1 Timothy 6 calls them senseless and harmful desires. Now, if you happen to be the owner of that vehicle, 
I'm not saying that that is a senseless and harmful desire necessarily, but the love of that vehicle might be a senseless and harmful desire, just as the love of any object that you own or any experience that you might crave can be senseless and harmful. Why might a love of money and our self-indulgence be so harmful? Because it destroys our relationships. When we put things and experiences above the people that we love and our relationships with them, that's where the destruction happens. And finally, which is probably a manifestation of power and also entitlement, is the right to be right. I think power and the love of money can sometimes give us this sense where we just have a right to be right. And we hear this, don't we? I think social media is full of this. Whenever we turn on a news bulletin, it's full of this. A good dose of respect and reverence wouldn't go astray. So I think godliness is the secret ingredient that enables us to pursue spiritual riches rather than material riches. Our Christian life engages us in a cycle of humility, generosity and thanksgiving. And finally, as we finish this whistle-stop tour through 1 Timothy, as we think about who we are called to become because of who God is, who is God in 1 Timothy? Who is the God that we have met as we've journeyed through very quickly and not looked at all of the passages? But I think it's going to, this is helpful for us. In 1 Timothy, we learn that God is merciful. In chapter 2, that Dale talked to us about, God is saviour. And perhaps these words were an early creed in the church. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. In chapter 3, that talks about how the household of God might live well together, a church of the living God. We together, we come to worship a living God. We receive our identity from this living God. And the mystery of our religion is great. We're never going to ex understand every detail. It would no longer cease to be the great call of faith that it is. Chapter 4, everything created by God is good. Not bad, good. And our living God is the saviour of all people, especially those who believe. Chapter five, God is present, not far away, not absent, not for some time in the future or back there in the past, but God is present and the object of our real and living hope. And in chapter 6, we've seen God gives life to all things and richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords is very Greco-Roman language. If Paul was writing that pastoral letter to Stuart in the 21st century, those those words to describe God may not be used, but these are the words that we have from Scripture. So the true life, the real life, is the life lived with this God. 
But there remains one really challenging question, I think. How does the lens of Australia's materialistic, pluralist, secular culture that influences the church, perhaps more than it ever has, how does, it in, how does this influence us as we read this letter? Because in the end, we naturally worship what we love. We just do. We can't help it because that's what human beings do. So one of the real challenges for us in our world, for us who live in the world in front of the text, is to find a way to live a godly and contented life, free from the love of money, and yet be actively engaged in all of the things that matter most in our time and place. Stewardship of the earth and concern about climate change. How do we oppose corruption in government? How do we live well with uncertainty about where the world economy is heading? How do we confront the economically powerful reality of human trafficking that is more endemic around the world than it ever has been? And how do we participate in a church that is struggling and divided regarding same-sex unions? What does the conclusion of this letter to Timothy urge us as a church to believe, to hope for, and to do. Paul gives Timothy the charge to remain faithful to the truth embodied in Jesus, the truth to which Jesus bore witness and suffered and died. So I'm going to read the last couple of verses from this letter, but from the message version as we close. Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Tell them, tell them to go after God, who piles on all the riches we could ever imagine, to do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they will build a treasury that will last, containing gaining life that truly is life. And oh, my dear Timothy, guard the treasure you were given. Guard it with your life. Avoid the talk show religion and the practice confusion of the so-called experts. People caught up in a lot of talk can miss the whole point of faith. Overwhelming grace keep you. Amen. Please would you stand as we sing together.